0: two boys that were sitting after life group and uh, they were sitting very quietly in their chairs and the reason why for this very rare occasion they were quiet is because of the subject matter of the teacher's lesson. It happened to be about Satan and demonic activity. Now as most teachers of children she was a little bit concerned about how she might you know, overemphasize certain things and maybe scare the heebie jeebies out of the children. But yet she didn't wanna, you know, not do her due diligence on the text that was assigned to her on that Sunday morning as she was to teach the kids. So she did the best that she could. And probably more than likely, she went a little bit on the overkill side. You know what I'm saying? Maybe a little bit harder than maybe you never know how children are going to take it and so these two boys were sitting in their chair very quietly reflecting upon the the lesson the teacher had just delivered and finally one little boy broke the silence and he said what do you think about all this satan stuff the other boy replied well you know how believing in santa claus turned out don't you he said no how well it's probably just your dad uh yeah All right, dads, I'm sorry. Right off the bat. <laughs> you know, the whole subject of Satan and demonic activity is a touchy subject. And sometimes I think there's certain opportunities where we sort of go a little bit overboard. And there's sometimes that we try to minimize the text and the subject because we don't want to go too far. And so we have a tendency, I think, to some, somewhere try to Try to go one way or the other. We are creatures of extremism, aren't we? But we want to sort of strike a balance, and I hope we do that today in our subject matter entitled, Overcoming Demons in the Power of Christ. Now, most of us, when we saw that title today, maybe in your outline inside of your, I don't know if it's a worship guide or it's a, what do we call that now? An information guide, It's, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, you saw the title, and you kind of were a little bit apprehensive about where we were going in this. Uh, Pastor Gail put on Facebook this sort of little blurb trying to sort of entice you to come about pigs and demons and, and the absence of pork. Um, you know, Pastor Mike was supposed to be here today, but because of the price of tickets, I'm not leaving till Tuesday to go to Canada. And he was sweating this passage, and so he's grateful that it's mine now instead of his uh, next Sunday he has another complicated passage, but uh, he'll be here in this in, in my place, and you don't want to miss Pastor Mike. He's turned out to be a pretty good pretty good preacher, I think. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. He he's probably a little bit overly alliterated. I mean, he's like two or three alliterations for every point, but he's working on that, so you might get there eventually. But anyway. So, uh, so th- it fell on me because we don't leave till Tuesday. So nonetheless, this is my responsibility. And so as I was taking a look at this text, I was kind of grateful when I first assigned it to Mike and then he was grateful to give it back to me. Uh, you know, Mike and I both have, have kind of somewhat given up pork. And so this is kind of a, a reprieve for us. And there's a reason why, because there's demonic activity in pork. You realize that? Although if you watch pig... You know, uh, it's a nice sweet meat. Uh, no, what was it? Not pig. Uh, it was uh, babe. And on babe, says pork is a nice sweet meat. So, you know, sausage, bacon, pork. What do you think about that, Bob? Uh, no bacon for the men's breakfast Saturday? Go bacon, he said. Go bacon for the men's. There's a little commercial for the men's breakfast this next Saturday. So, anyway... So we're going to take a look at this very difficult subject on demonic activity. Now, as we begin this study, uh, just for the record, it's not your dad, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's not. But what about demonic activity today? I mean, there's, there's a lot of various definitions of demonic activity and a lot of deep discussion about it and there's some of us who believe in it there's some of us who don't want to believe in it and there's some of us just think you know that's something back in the old testament or the new testament the biblical days it's not a reality today and so we have a tendency i think when we read passages and study passages like this that we often question how does this really relate to reflect upon my life today in dealing with satan and demonic activity because the, the truth is, most of us don't, don't think a lot about demonic activity in our day-to-day lives. We, we're not looking for it. And, and if we were to encounter it, most of us would probably not recognize it, much less confront it. Because it's just not something that's on our radar. And so I want us to take a look at this very important passage today, on the believer and his authority to overcome demonic activity in the power of Christ. Now we have already studied and I think it's it's an indisputable fact that Jesus in the New Testament confronted demonic activity I and mean, we see early on in Matthew's Gospel chapter 4 where Jesus following the baptism of John the Baptist is, is now in the desert and he is confronting Satan who tempts him three times to compromise his position and to worship him. And Jesus resists and defeats Satan's attempt in the desert. We see then following at the end of chapter 4 where Jesus after having selected his disciples is now having an incredible amount of success and we learn at the end of chapter 4 that he becomes involved early on in his mission and his message in casting out demons and dealing with demonic activity, demonic oppression and possession. Then we learned after the Sermon on the Mount in this study that we began a couple of weeks ago Where Jesus after he came down from the Sermon on the Mount and is proceeding toward Capernaum. He enters into the city and he makes his way to the synagogue. And while he's teaching in the synagogue, he is interrupted by a man who is demon-possessed. And he casts out in the worship service a man who is possessed by a demon. And they are wowed and amazed by Jesus' power. So much so that following the service, they notice where he goes. Where he goes? He goes to Simon Peter's home. And they await the end of the Sabbath, and that evening they make their way to Simon Peter's home. And the whole town gathers there, not only for physical healing, but Jesus is involved in casting out demonic possession and oppression. So there again, Jesus is involved in a demonic oppression and suppression ministry where he's setting people free. We then learn in Matthew chapter 8, as you notice on the screen, Matthew 8, 16, where it says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So Jesus, I mean, it's unquestionable for us. It's indisputable that Jesus confronted many, many times many people with demonic possession, oppression, and suppression and cast out these demons and their oppression upon these people. But, did Jesus then entrust that authority to his disciples? The answer to that is yes. We see in Mark chapter 3, notice Jesus shares his authority with his disciples. He's about to send them off without him, and he's going to tell them to proclaim the good news, the message, the gospel, and he gives them the power and the authority over demons. And he, Jesus, appointed 12, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and notice verse 15, and have authority to cast out demons. He gave his disciples the authority to cast out demons. That's the 12. Later on, we learn in Luke where he sends out 70. And as they go out to proclaim the gospel, they come back, and the Bible says that they were overjoyed, and they say, Jesus, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And Jesus says in Luke 19, I have given you authority over the power of the enemy. So Jesus had authority and power over Satan and demonic activity. He then bestows that upon his disciples, the 12. Then he gives it to the 70, and now the question is, Do we have that power? Do we have that ability today? The answer is yes, for demonic activity is just as prevalent today as it was in the day of Christ. The same Satan and the same demonic activity that exists in the Old Testament and the New Testament is still very much active and very prevalent in our society today, now we would probably say, "Okay, well, I can get that. It's in other countries. It's in it's in other continents, but it's not in the U.S." I mean, we're highly educated, uh, highly intelligent people. We live in a you know a, a great society. We're not a third world country. So, is there demonic activity today in the U.S.? What's the answer to that? Yes. Is there demonic activity? in the state of Kansas? Is there demonic activity in the state of Oklahoma? Never mind, we're not going there. How about the city of Wichita? Would you say there's demonic activity here? Let me take it a step further. Is there demonic possession in the city of Wichita? And by possession, I mean that a single demon or multiple demons have inhabited, they have occupied the, the the body of an individual where that person is now no longer of his own free will in control of his actions. So now Satan is completely in control of what is going on and how he is acting. The answer is yes. For that is what demonic possession is according to the New Testament. For well, the same Satan and the same demons are still very actively involved today. And we know that it's only going to continue because as we get closer and closer to the end times, demonic activity is going to be on the rise. And eventually, during the period of tribulation, another commercial for my class, we're going to study about the false prince and the false prophet today in Revelation chapter 13 in our study on Sunday night in Discipleship University. For when the end time comes and tribulation comes, more and more demonic activity is going to be prevalent, more and more demons are going to be loosed from the abyss, Satan is going to be on the rise, and demonic activity is going to prevail. And so demonic activity is not something that has ceased. So why do we think that somehow demonic activity is not something that we should be, and I'm not saying we should go around looking at demonic activity in every bush and every... You know, every shadow or, or everything. But I think it ought to be at least on our radar. We must be aware that Satan and demonic activity is coming against us personally as believers. And the testimony that we have, it, it, he is coming against our marriages with demonic activity. He's coming against our family, our children, our grandchildren, and even our great-grands. Congratulations, Titus. For those of you who don't know, that is not Andy and Kayla's little baby. That is his niece. Congratulations, guys. And we have a new baby born, too, to the Barton family over here. Two girls. We had a special on girls in the last month, so two girls. But anyway, but there is demonic activity that is highly strategic and intentional that is being targeted for the purpose of destroying the activity, the work, and the people, if not the church, of Christ even today and we need to be on on alert because in our next passage in Ephesians chapter 6 notice what it says finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers of So the question is, how do we stand firm in this present age, in this present day, as Jesus did toward demonic activity around us and in the lives of others? Well, let's take a look at the passage this morning, and I want to come up with seven basic steps that will help us do exactly that. First of all, when faced with demonic activity, this is what we must do. We must advance without hesitation. Advance without hesitation. Hesitation. Notice in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, and when he, Jesus, came to the other side. We left Jesus last Sunday with his disciples who were on a boat. They had left the area because it was a little bit dangerous and the crowd was becoming a mob. Jesus told his disciples to get on the boat. They began to cross to the other side. They're going north. To, to southeast, and as they were traveling, Jesus went below, he we fell asleep, a storm came, they woke him up, Jesus, what's up, <laughs> we're about to die, steps on, on, on top of the, the, the bow there, and he calms the waters, and now they arrive safely on shore on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and it is early dawn, it's early in the morning. So now they arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, following the storm. Now keep in mind, if you remember, that Jesus rebuked the storm. And we concluded last week that the reason he rebuked the storm was because he believed that, and I believe the scriptures indicate, that the one behind the storm, seeking to prevent Jesus from arriving at his destination... And maybe stopping Jesus from his mission was none other than Satan himself. And Satan was creating the diversions and creating the storm. And Jesus rebukes the storm and it stops. And now they're on the other side of the sea. So here we go. They land in the country of Arterines. This is a very, very unusual place. There's a lot of conflict and controversy over this location. I don't really think it really pertains to the reason why we are in this text. It really doesn't matter much, really except for the fact that this is a Gentile region. This is an area, it's a, it's a location, it's a sort of a broad description of an area that is pretty wide and pretty broad. Obviously, every area wanted at least some connection to the sea, to the commerce and, and to, the, to the wealth that would, that would connect to this sort of sea and, and all that it would entail in their community. And so they arrive at this particular location and notice as soon as they step off of the boat and proceed to travel, the Bible says two demon-possessed men meet him. Instantly, these two demon-possessed men, they meet him. This word for possessed means exactly that. They are possessed by demons. Now, there is a word for oppressed. But there is a word for possessed, and sometimes in the Bible they are inadvertently exchanged. But here they are being controlled by a demonic force that resides within inside of them that is causing them to act a little bit peculiar. Turn to your neighbor and say, have you been acting peculiar today? Now, hopefully you've been not acting this kind of peculiar because Mark tells us that they were so peculiar that they were ostracized from the community. They were out living in and among the dead. They were living in a graveyard, and they were living in the side of the cliffs where they would dig them out. They were not literally living inside of the tombs, but probably in the proximity of the entrance of the tombs, sort of isolated and insulated from the others so that they would not only harm the ones that were in the city, but maybe even harmed themselves. They, did, they were just sort of outcast. And they were, they, were, they were demonically possessed and oppressed. They were living in a distant place away from the city. And notice they came out of the tombs. They left their hiding place. And they're the ones that approach Christ. Christ doesn't go to them they come to him. Now Jesus is in close proximity of them because we learn that it says, so fierce that no one could pass by. Now this was a, an area and this was a pathway that the locals knew not to travel. And the reason why is because they knew these two very strange looking, strange acting guys, they had they have tried to bind them in chains and tried to to hold them back, but they would break the chains and cut loose from anything that they tried to use to constrain them. They were out of control. They were sort of weird-looking, weird-acting, you know, not sure exactly all that was going on, but there was something peculiar about them. And so uh, all of their effort to try to constrain them was was useless, but so much so as people would travel down this path, they knew that they would have to confront these two demon-possessed guys, and no one could pass by. No one could constrain them, and no one could travel down that road and pass that way. They just avoided it because you wouldn't pass. And so, as Jesus and the disciples are traveling that path, here they come to do what? To prevent them probably from passing. Now, notice Jesus is advancing without hesitation. He sees them. Jesus is not taken by surprise in this text. Jesus is on a mission. He has intentionally, if you remember last week, told his disciples to get into the boat and they intentionally were purposefully heading in this direction. Why? Because God was actively working in the lives of these two men and there was something that God wanted to do at this time, at this moment, with these two demon-possessed men so that they might be set free. Everyone else avoided them. No one else wanted to talk to them. They were isolated on their own, insulated from society, rejects. And yet God sees them in their circumstance, in their condition. And Jesus is on a mission to redeem, to set free these two demon-possessed men. And Jesus is unequivocally Unafraid of approaching these two men Because he knows that he is in the purpose And the plan that God has for these two men Whenever you're in the center of the will of God for your life Do not allow fear to override faith Wherever God happens to send you Whatever he instructs you to say Wherever he wants you to go Whatever he wants you to become Don't be afraid For too often, I think, our hesitation is reflected upon the fear that we have because we're afraid to go with God, because we see what is there and we imagine all kinds of things, as we saw last week, that are not based on reality. They're based upon some sort of imagined presupposition of how things are going to turn out. But here we see Jesus is advancing without hesitation. He has no fear. He's going straight for the plan and the intent that God has for his life. Number two, we need to approach with conviction. There's a a basic aspect of approaching with the right kind of conviction. I want you to notice in this text that these two guys put up an argument and they are testing the conviction, I think, of Christ. I imagine that. Questioning Jesus about what he's about to do. And Before we even read the text, I want you to think about how many times have you, maybe Afraid of what Christ may about to do in your life. Or may, maybe what God is wanting to do in your life. You've questioned him like, really God? And you've put up a bunch of arguments you know, to sort of test the conviction of God. As to do you really want to make this happen? Notice how they test the conviction of Christ. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out. Now, as they confront Jesus, and behold, that means something spectacular is about to happen, if not just two demon-possessed coming by looking really weird and all freaked out. And if that's not a behold enough as it is, behold, notice what happens. They cry out. That word cry out is a word that seems to indicate that they were screaming. They were squeaking. And and I'm going to sort of read what they have said in, in kind of maybe the kind of voice in which they used. Notice what they say to Christ. What have you to do with us? Oh, son of God, have you become here to torment us before our time? Pretty scary, isn't it? Just be glad you don't have to go home with me today. That's something similar. Maybe a little higher pitched. It was a somewhat like that but it was an audible speech where words were being used where words were being understood and they addressed Jesus and notice in this address they realize that they have nothing in common with Jesus they say what have you to do with us in other words we have nothing in common and I want you to realize that you have nothing in common with Satan or his demons there is no common ground there is no place where you can say look We're gonna we're gonna agree here, and we're gonna be on common ground. There's no common ground with Satan. There isn't. He's out for your destruction, and there is no negotiating with him. And saying let's let's kind of let's agree to that we you know let's just kind of find some common ground here. No, you can't. They recognize that Jesus. We have nothing in common. We have no common ground. Notice not only realize they have nothing in common, but they recognize Jesus' identity. They recognize his authority, they call him the son of God. Now, I know that some want to tell us that that's kind of a a common greeting, but that's not really common. This is anything but common. These guys here know because they are demons who are speaking through the vocal cords and the mouth of this man. They recognize that they're in the presence of the son of God and that he has authority over them. How do you know that? Because of what they say next, have you come here to torment us before our time? They're they're putting up an argument. This is not time for us to be tormented. Well, why are you here? We have no common ground. I find it interesting that the demons themselves recognize that there's going to be a time for judgment. And that judgment is coming. And they are aware of it. And they recognize that. And they know that when judgment comes they are going to be sent into a place of eternal torment and that word torment means pain it means agony in a place prepared for those who are evil meaning hell demons know that their ultimate destination is to spend eternity in hell and yet we have a church today we have a church today who have forgotten and have lost the reality of hell Hell is a real place where real demons will reside for eternity at some point. Satan, too, will be cast in the eternal abyss. And so will those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus, who have not received forgiveness of sin. That should create a sense of urgency in our heart to take the good news, the gospel of Christ, to a lost world to prevent the demonic activity from robbing people from the eternal destiny through faith in Jesus. Hell is a real place and demons know that one day they will be sent to hell and hell is not a happy place, it is a place of torment, it's a place of agony, it is a place of pain and they're putting up an argument here, Jesus, I want to test your convictions, are you sure this is the time that you want to exercise your authority? When you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what happened there? Satan tested Eve's convictions about what God had said, right? When Jesus was in the desert and he had that encounter with Satan, Satan tested his convictions about God and the truths of the Word of God. And that's exactly, I believe, what the enemy is doing here through the vocal cords of this man. These demons are testing the convictions of Christ. And I'm convinced Satan will test your convictions as well. When he does, we should hold true to our convictions and not compromise. Number three, we must apply an uncompromising faith. Notice an uncompromising faith from Jesus, verse 30. It's interesting that sort of Matthew sort of takes a reprieve and he's setting up for us the scene about what is about to take place. I mean, he sort of steps to the side from the encounter and and he sort of creates a, a painting for us so that we can see what's about to happen. He wants us to know the landscape. Verse 30, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at the some distance from them. And at first you go, oh, what does this have to do? With anything? You're going to learn in a minute. But all of a sudden he says, hey, at a distance there were some, not sheep herders, pig herders, I guess. And they were tending to some pigs. Some commentators believe there were about 2,000 of them. Not sure that's the exact amount, but there were many of them. And they were at some distance. Now we know that, that this distance is at a safe distance because there's no way in the world that these guys are going to come anywhere close to this location where these two guys can come down from the tombs and confront them. So they're at a safe distance, but they're at a distance where they can see and maybe hear what's going on. They're going to know what happens when their pigs jump into the water and drown. And so they're close enough to be safe, but they're close enough to hear and to see what's going on. So they're at a distance from Jesus and this encounter. Verse 31, now he goes on with what happens. And the demons then began to beg. The demons began to implore. The, be- the demons begin to, to, to plead with Jesus saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. I don't know if you caught that word or not. I did the word "if." That, that's a large two-letter word in the English vocabulary. If that implies a condition in this text, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. It implies maybe, just maybe, we can find a solution. Just maybe there's there's an alternative. Just maybe we can seek a resolution. Now, we've already sort of dealt with that, but here we go again. They're trying to find room to compromise. They're trying to find a negotiation between them and Jesus. They know what's about to come, so they're imploring, they're pleading, and they're begging, and they're asking, well, okay, if you're, if, if, if there's a condition, if, you might not, but if, we're, we're questioning your power, we're questioning your authority, and we're questioning what you're about to do. So if it's your will, then then maybe if you're going to just just, so I ask you, in dealing with Satan, is there room for compromise? Is there, is there room for us to, to negotiate with him? And often he he pleads, he begs, he implores. And, and he, he takes not the seat now of the aggressor, but he takes the seat of the victim here. You see what he's saying. He, he, the demons now are not the aggressors. They're, they're playing the role of the victim. Oh, oh, please, don't, don't hurt me. Don't, don't do this to me. I don't deserve this. I don't, don't cast me out. Don't, don't reject me. Just, just let me coexist with you. Let me, let me try to. Yeah. See. Jesus is not going to. He's not going to yield. And neither should you. You you must have an unyielding faith in confronting Satan and his demonic activity and not find a place for compromise. For next we see we must end that negotiation with him. We need to anticipate that there's going to be some sort of resistance. There's going to be some resistance. Satan and his demons don't go without a fight. They don't go easily there's going to be a, an arm wrestling. We call it, we wrestle not, right? Now what he says, we wrestle not. And I know some of you make fun of the way I say wrestle. I'm sorry, I'm from Texas. We wrestle, okay? And, and there's going to be some struggle. There's going to be some wrestling. Now, it's not the kind that I used to do with my kids, that it's for fun, but eventually somebody got hurt, and that's when mom came in and broke it up. But but it's the kind of wrestling that it's not a fun, it, it's, a, it's an all-out battle. Because Satan is not going to let go of the person or the territory or the area that he has possession of without a fight. He's going to give it all he's got. Notice, in Mark chapter 5, we're going to jump the, to the narrative in Mark 5. Mark is the largest narrative of Matthews and Luke's. There's three times, Matthew, Luke, and Mark, where we have this narrative recorded. Mark has 20 verses of what happens here. Matthew is the shortest, and Luke is somewhere in the middle. He's the doctor, so uh, but but Matthew's the shortest. He gets straight into it and straight out of it. But but Mark, I like him. He's a little more verbose. I don't know why I would like him more, but he's a little more verbose. And he says in verse eight. Notice he says about this narrative: "For he was saying to him, He Jesus was saying to the man who was demon possessed." actually speaking to the demons, come out of a man, you unclean spirit. Now, this this comment that Jesus is making is in the imperfect tense. And what that says to us is that Jesus was repeatedly saying the same thing, for the demon to come out. But the demon was not coming out. It wasn't that Christ didn't have the power to expel or to exorcised the demon. It was the demon was not going down without a fight. He is putting up a fight against the Son of God. And if he puts up a fight against the Son of God, you better be believing that he will put up a fight against you. He will. And there's a battle going on. Jesus finally interrupts the battle and he asks the demons, he asks the man, What is your name? Now, the reason he asks his name is because he knows that the demon's name will reveal his nature. But not only that, he's wanting a confession from the man and the demons. And they respond to him. My name is, notice this, legion. How many demons are in this man? A legion is 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now, are there 6,000 demons occupying this man's body? I tell you, no. How do you know that? Because Satan is a liar and the demons are liars. And they always present themselves stronger than what they really are. Let me say that again. They always present themselves stronger and mightier or more than they really are. But there were many. But notice now what happens in 10. And he begged him. Begged Jesus earnestly pleading, begging not to send them out of the country. He knows that resistance is futile. If I can borrow the words to that movie. We must anticipate resistance. Satan is not going to flee. And the demons are not going to leave without a battle. Number five. We need to activate divine authority in the battle. When faced with demonic activity, always activate the divine authority that you have in Christ. Jesus assumes the authority. Notice verse 32. And he said to them, he said to them, not just to the two men, but to the demons that were in the men, go. How many words? How many words? One word. You know, I don't know about you if you ever read anything on demon possession and demon exorcism. And uh, there's a lot of things you can read. They have these formulas and all this kind of stuff. And you got to go through this routine. Jesus didn't have any of that. One word, go. This is a command, by the way. An authoritative command where he says, go. And what's the response? And they came out. They departed. And they went into the pigs. What is their destination? They went into the pigs. And behold, notice what happens here. Pay attention. the whole herd rushed down the steep bank, notice a place of cliffs, and into the sea they fall over the cliff, and they drown into the water. They're destroyed. Now why would Jesus destroy some great bacon or some sausage? Why would he do that? Well, first of all, pigs were unclean animals, and these were unclean spirits. There's an analogy there, but I don't need to make that for you. I think you're smart enough to make that analogy on your own. But I think Jesus is trying to help them have a visual picture because some of you are visual learners. I said some of you are visual learners. Visual learner, raise your hand. You're a visual learner. They saw the demons leaving the man I'm sure there was some sort of something that happened, not sure exactly what, when the demons left the two men and when they came into the pigs and they saw the pigs go off the cliff and they watched them die. Why would Jesus do that? Because he's giving them a visual picture. The demons are gone. They will harm these two guys no more, and they will not harm this country or this area no longer. You're safe. They are gone. The battle's over. The victory is mine. Jesus assumed his authoritative position as the Son of God. Keep in mind, Jesus gave his 12 that authority. He gave 70 that authority. And he gave you and I today the same authority. Jesus said when he commissioned us to go with a great commission to make disciples, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why did he say that? To help us realize as we go out to proclaim the gospel that we, like his disciples, have all of the authority, all of the power of Christ in our message and in our ministry. We have authority. Don't buy into the demonic lie in, in, in Satan's trying to convict you or convince you that you do not, as a believer, have authority over demonic activity. You, who are filled with the Spirit born again by the Spirit of God, have authority over demonic influence, demonic oppression, and demonic suppression. You have the authority that's, that's based upon and founded in your position in Christ. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Activate divine authority. Don't be a coward. Don't be a, a wimp, a wuss, or fearful. Number six, we need to accept, then, natural reactions. There are people who are not going to embrace the whole concept of demonic activity. There are some believers today who will reject completely this whole concept of demonic activity. And they will, in the natural, reject you. Notice what happens to Jesus. or what happened to him will happen to us as well. Verse 33, the herdsmen, what did they do? They fled. Why did they flee? They were freaked out. They were watching what was going on, and they saw what happened to the two guys, and they watched their pigs go off the cliff and drown. They fled in fear, and they went to the closest city by, and they told them everything, everything that happened, especially what happened to the two demon-possessed men. Matthew was very, very smart in helping us recognize not only did, did they report what happened to the pigs, but they reported what happened to the pigs was because of what happened to the two demon-possessed men. Jesus cast the demons out, they went into our pigs, and they drowned. Now notice, they leave their city out to where Jesus is to find the truth, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. They wanted to meet this guy. They've been living with these two demon-possessed guys on that pathway for quite some time. The whole townspeople are afraid and they're fearful of them. They know how wacky and how crazy they are. They themselves have tried to constrain them and prevent them from inflicting fear and havoc on their community without any success. And now Jesus steps in with one word, go, and it's over. And so they want to come out and investigate. They want to find the truth for themselves. And when they do, notice, they saw him. They begged him to leave their region. When they saw what? Not the dead pigs. When they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus. When they saw Jesus, they decided that he needed to leave the region. One commentator said this, and I I like sort of one of the conclusions that he had in regard to this. He said, "There there, there are some people who will stop at nothing to prevent the activity of God from happening in their midst. They don't want an activity of God. They would rather not have Jesus than have a supernatural activity because they like things the way they are. Don't mess with my life, God. I like it just the way it is. Don't, don't mess with my family. I like things just the way they are. Don't mess with my church. I like things just where they are. But you know, when Jesus invades our lives and he brings this incredible transformation, he changes every aspect about us. And our lives are never the same. And these people did not want Christ in their region and they asked him to leave. We don't want your activity here. We don't want your presence here. We don't want your power here. We don't want God's plan actively working here. We we like things just the way they are. They weren't even I don't think that concerned about the cost of losing the livestock that now is dead in the water. And so we must accept that there're going to be natural reactions of rejection to the activity of God God brings miraculous transformation but lastly we need to then authenticate God's activity let's close with this thought Jesus is wanting to authenticate this miraculous activity because you take a look at what's about to happen in verse 18 back now to Mark 5 Matthew skips this part but I I just couldn't skip this because this is this is incredible what Mark records what happens after the miracle Notice in verse 18 As he was getting into the boat Jesus He complies He's not pushy He's not pushy Man if you don't want him he's, he'll, let you, he'll leave you alone You reject him He'll leave you alone. You resist him, he'll leave you alone. If you say, God, not interested, he'll say, okay. There will come a time you will want my activity, but all right. And so he's about to get into the boat. He's he's complying with their request. We don't want you here. But the man who had been possessed with demons, the guy who's been freed, who's been transformed, who's been liberated, begged him that he might be with him. He didn't want Jesus to leave. He wanted to hang out with Jesus, but more than that, he wanted not just the presence of Christ to be with him, but he wanted to be a disciple of Christ. He wanted to be a a follower of Jesus. He wanted to become one of the 12. I mean... They've been set free, and now they want to follow Jesus. Their lives have been transformed. Don't leave. I want more. I want to be more. I want to become more. But Jesus says, notice their passion was to follow Christ, but notice he has a purpose, and he did not permit him. No, can't let you come. I imagine that's probably disappointing You think. Probably disappointing for these two guys. No, you can't come. But he says to them, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What's the purpose? Jesus is saying, these people are rejecting me and I'm going to comply with their, their request, but I need a witness here. I need a testimony. I need someone who will proclaim the good news, the gospel of a transformed life. I need somebody who will go. That's his mission Go. I want somebody to tell. Tell what? Tell the message of the gospel. And I want somebody to be not on just a mission with a message, but here's the means. The means is by grace through faith. In that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. These men did not deserve it. But because of the mercy and the grace of God, God transformed their lives. He set them free. And now they have been given a mission. They've been given a message. And the means by which they are saved, notice he says, how he has mercy on you. And the same way he had mercy on them, God will have mercy on those who hear and who receive your message. Now notice then their obedience their practice of the Great Commission. And he went away, began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. What did he do? He went back to his hometown, and he proclaimed the good news of Christ. He told everyone how much the Lord had done for him. How long has it been since you've told somebody what the Lord's done for you? How long has it been since you have told somebody how much the Lord has done for you? Well, they hadn't done a whole lot for me lately. Really? How much has he done for you? What is your testimony? How far have you come? What were you once like, and now what are you today? Today? Because of what? Because of the mercy and the grace of God bestowed upon you through the sacrificial, atoning death of Christ on the cross, where he took upon himself your sin against God and died in your place. And one day, while you were minding your own business, he reached down in the pits of your depravity and redeemed you unto himself through faith in that redemptive work. And he set you free from the shackles of sin, from the enslavement to Satan, and from all the oppression of the enemy. And now you have been set free. You have been transformed by that mercy and by that grace of God. And if God never did a single thing for you from that moment on, it is enough. If he's not done anything beyond that point in your life, he has done all that is necessary. And you've got more than enough to proclaim, to declare, and to tell others what God has done for you. So as we close, here's the question. The only way you and I, can overcome the demons is in the power of Christ. For I am convinced that in this church there will be, for there has been, demonic activity. Guarantee it. Satan's not content and he's not happy to let this church go out and have a A declaration, a proclamation, a testimony, an influence, a ministry, not only in this community, but in the world. And he's actively working against us as a church family and a community of faith. And we together must come together to, to confront and to oppose and to defeat. The demonic activity of Satan for what he wants to do with his church is to destroy it the way he destroyed the pigs. Because that is his ultimate objective and his demonic activity is total annihilation, complete destruction. There is no negotiation. There is no common ground. There is no peace agreement with the devil and his demons. It's all out war. not only after the church, but he's after your family members. He's after your marriage. He's after you individually. Because he doesn't want you and the testimony of what God has done through Christ in you to affect this community. And if he can keep you silent, he will do it. You know how he does it? Sin he gets us so wrapped up and so entangled with the affairs and the activities of this world and this life and carnal fleshly sinful desires and natures that we have that he erodes and degrades and tears at our witness and our ministry he gets us thinking about how what what a pity party we have and how hard things are and how difficult and gets our eyes off Christ, there are a myriad of ways that he uses to get us off of the fact that we have more than enough, if we have nothing else but our own salvation, to go out and to proclaim the good news of Christ. You are God's greatest asset to reach a lost world for Christ. We must first receive him. These two men would have never been transformed without receiving the mercy and the grace of Christ. If you have never received Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, this is the moment, this is the day he wants to set you free. Once we receive him, James 4 and 1 Peter 5 says that we must then resist him. We must resist him. Or once we take sides with Christ, we're on his team now. We have an enemy. We're out to resist him. And we're to do everything we can in resisting him to reject his domination, not only in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, and in our church, but in the world. How do we do that? By declaring the greatest message and the greatest news of the gospel. As we live a transformed life, the day-to-day lives of the free there's a fight you're in the battle I urge you, encourage you join the team, get on board let's resist, reject let's remember that in Christ
1: we have the authority
0: set people free, gospel, power, our testimony.
2: This morning, we once again have the opportunity to begin our worship service with three ladies giving their public testimony, being marked as Christ followers through Believer's Baptism. First is Melissa. Melissa had been coming for a while and uh, came and visited and realized that she had not received Christ as her personal Savior and Lord, but then... Uh, came in and prayed and received Christ as her savior and comes this morning to give that public testimony of her profession of faith and being marked as a Christ follower. If you're part of Melissa's family or life group, would you stand as you support her today? Melissa, have you come to that place in your life where you've asked Christ to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss and it is your desire to be marked as his follower today. Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. You know, as God begins to work in a family He takes those seeds planted and he uses them to bring others to the kingdom as well. This is Lydia and uh, this is Melissa's daughter. And after Melissa was saved, uh, Lydia began to uh, visit with her mom about what it means to be a Christ follower and later received Christ as her savior and her boss as well. So Lydia, do you come today? assured of the fact of knowing that you've asked Christ to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss and as you, your desire to be marked as his follower today. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And this is Lupe that comes this morning. Uh, After attending her DU class last Sunday night, she realized that she needed to be connected officially to the membership here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Said that she'd accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior time past, uh, but wanted to join the fellowship here at our church. Is there any friends or family or members of her life group that are here this morning that could stand? (laughs) Lupe, have you received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, and you desire to be marked as his believer today? Then I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of